What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hey, stranger. The Opus is moving out and into a new season as we continue to explore the ongoing legacy of music's most iconic records. I'm your host, Adam Unz, and this season we're celebrating the 45th anniversary of Billy Joel's fifth studio album, The Stranger, a record whose critical and commercial success catapulted the piano man to superstardom. Helping us explore this classic collection are artists like Billy Joel's drummer Liberty DeVito, Regina Spector, Andrew McMahon in the Wilderness, Rozzy, Lissy, The Arkells, Bayside's Anthony Renari, and Ben Folds. Great music shapes lives, shakes rafters, and embeds itself into our culture. So let's find out why only the good die young as we deep dive into The Stranger. The new season is out now and is brought to you by the Consequence Podcast Network and Sony Legacy Recordings. Find us at consequence.net or wherever you get your podcasts. Yay, it's the Spark Parade. I'm Adam Unz. I'm back. You're back. We're all back together. Isn't it lovely? Isn't it just? Well, I hope you're ready for a jam-packed episode because that's what I've got for you. And I do mean jam-packed. I had a fantastic chat with opera singer, cabaret artist, actor, drag artist, and all-around incredible human being, Legato Chocolat. He is extremely passionate about art and wanted to talk about quite a range of topics, so that's what we did. We discussed his love for, drumroll, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone slash Philosopher's Stone, depending on the country in which you bought that book, as well as a couple of films, Black Panther and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, as well as a couple of opera divas, Angela Gheorghiu and Jesse Norman, with bonus Hamilton thrown in. Buckle your seatbelts, kids. It's such a great conversation. But before we dig into that, I'm going to talk a bit about diversity and representation, which are subjects that are featured prominently throughout this episode. But I wanted to dig a little deeper into it because that's the kind of guy I am. So... We are living in a time when there is more diversity in the arts than ever before, especially in film and TV. There are stories being told by and about people of color and women and queer people and all different types of marginalized folks, and it's great. But it's also an uphill battle. The victories in representation that we've seen in films like Black Panther and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse have been the culmination of decades of a hard-fought, incremental shifting of the cultural needle 
towards inclusion. But there's still a long way to go. As part of the continued diversification of the subjects of the stories being told, there also needs to be diversity in the stories themselves. True inclusion means moving away from tokenism and stereotype in the stories being told, and moving towards complex, varied stories about realistic, well-rounded characters. That's why it's absolutely incredible to see shows like Atlanta and Insecure with predominantly black cast telling fresh, exciting, incredibly well-written stories, not stories written for white characters that were then cast with black actors, not stories that marginalize black characters or present them as stereotypes. These are stories written by and about black people where the character's blackness is absolutely essential to the narrative telling universal stories through the lens of blackness, as well as telling stories that are specific to the black experience. And that's what we need more of. Diversity and inclusion, yes, but also specificity. We can't expect every TV show or film about a marginalized group of people to be a representation of all members of that group. The press seemed to think that Crazy Rich Asians was great for Asian representation, but what the fuck does that even mean? Asia is a continent, y'all. And each of the countries in that continent is unique and has a whole spectrum of cultures and traditions that can and should be explored. Shows like Transparent help to move trans people into the public consciousness, sure, but trans people have full, rich, emotionally complex lives beyond their coming out stories. And those stories deserve to be told too. So how do we get stories that are more specific and realistic? With my old friend, Access to Opportunity. Giving more opportunities to writers and directors and actors and all kinds of artists from underrepresented communities and providing them with space to tell their own stories. And to tell the stories we already know and love. Detective stories and rom-coms and road trips and surreal Lynchian weirdness and horror movies. But to tell those stories through their own experience. And God knows there's room for everybody. Have you seen how much content is available these days? So, so much. Got it? Good. Okay. Shall we move along? Let's do. Here comes my chat with Legato Chocolat. So should we start with Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, which for any Americans who are listening to this is Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, because of course the publishers thought that American children would be turned off by the concept of philosophy, and that's why Trump is president. Ah, ba-bam. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so you read it when you were at uni yes i read it i remember very clearly what year it was and i remember that i read the book in about three hours it was the year i'm gonna say 2000 because that's when i started my law degree in sussex and I read it in one day. And I, at that point, I don't think there had been whispers of the film as yet. I don't think that was the case. So the first film only came out like three years after the first book. I'm maybe making this up. But yeah, I just remember there'd been a lot of um, uh, talk about this book. It had a lot of buzz and not something that you would think I, I would choose to discuss. But the reason I'm choosing to discuss this book is only because of how significant it was when I read it, What um, how significant it was to me. So I was just a little bit months into my law degree, which I completed in 2003. But very early on in my law degree, it's not so, the, the, my choice of 
talking about this book isn't so much about the book, but more the reason why I've chosen to talk about it. It's um, the four, the, uh, I was about maybe three, four months into my degree. And um, within, even though I'd had the ambition to be a lawyer, to kind of study and take up law as my chosen occupation, and career, the reality of doing that was very, very different. And I'd since moving back to England from Nigeria in 98, so this was two years on, I had since discovered performance. I'd since discovered that performance could be my career. And so being on the law degree, within two weeks of it, I discovered that it wasn't really for me. And the reality of actually studying it was very, very different. But kind of pursuing the degree still, because I can completed it made me very, very depressed. And one of the reasons why I remember, there were a number of things I remember um, during, and I think that, that was actually my first kind of experience of depression. I remember a number of things that were shards of life in what was an increasingly dark time. And one of them was this book. Mm -hmm. I've been talking to a lot of people about, you know, obviously that's the idea of the podcast is talking to people about why art is important to them. And I think sometimes in discussions of art and the importance of it, what gets lost is that one of the primary functions of art is pleasure. Um, and just giving you moments to escape and relax and absolutely you know. and be distracted and be comforted and to, you know what is there there's a, there's a really famous quote um, is a Banksy quote art should comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable mm-hmm. yeah and um, I suppose something as innocuous as a story about a boy and magic and owls and bells and snakes and other worlds was it seems really innocuous but it was actually kind of massive because i always sought out things to distract me and comfort me and that book was one of them in in those three years that i was studying the degree yeah and you ended up pursuing a career as a wizard off of <laughs> yeah. as well so absolutely there you go <laughs> so the films that you mentioned um, from 2018 that you were excited about, Black yeah. Panther and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, both superhero movies, both really good movies, very yeah. exciting. And you see a lot of movies anyway, don't you? I do. Oh my god, I'm always I'm always in the cinema. There's something. Uh, there's a cinema here called Cine World, and they've got an unlimited card, which is seventeen ninety nine. I suppose that'd be like twenty three or twenty four dollars a month, and you can see as many movies as you like in one day or in an entire month. So again, that's something that I got into. I've always been really into movies growing up, but coming here as well and. Actually, as a matter of escape, cinema became a huge crutch for me because I felt like in those two, three hours, I could be distracted enough or lost in a completely world that I didn't have to deal with the reality of being depressed or whatever. And so cinema was a huge, huge part of my escapism. Um, and so this year, 2018, I've seen, I definitely go into hundreds of films just in terms of how I commute. I watch films in my commute. I watch films when I've got insomnia. I watch films just to chill out and relax. And I've seen so many films this year and so many films that have made a huge impact and so many films that have moved me or made me laugh. But I've chosen these two films just because they kind of bookend 2018. 
Mm-hmm. Black Panther opened in February and this one was in November. And I've chosen them just because of how significant they are in changing the narrative in the conversation about diversity and representation. Now, diversity is the drive or the thrust to include all these different voices in the conversation and actually kind of be more, change the timbre of the conversation to something that's akin to reality. So like when I'm on a train to London, the trains aren't, the train carriages aren't separated by white, Asian, black, Chinese. No, we all see, you know, the train, my train from Brighton to London goes by a Gatwick airport. So at any given time, it's me, a Spanish person, an Asian person, a Nigerian person, a Caucasian person, a German person, Italian person, you know, a mix. And the great thing about what Black Panther did in terms of moving the conversation on just from diversity to representation is um, the portrayal of Black people in films regality as royalty and that was the same in the same way that um, I don't know when America might have another black president but the fact that Obama has been president gives an entire generation to come the audacity to have the hope and the ambition to achieve that same to, to achieve the same conquest to be able to do that and I think that is the same thing that Black Panther did. It was so great to see a movie where the black character wasn't a drug dealer or or from a ghetto or just some kind of not basically perpetuating a stereotype. Right. They, they, um, all of them were in Leeds. Um, the Dora Milaje, the the women were incredible, such incredible warriors. Uh, Chadwick Boseman was so regal. The way oh, what's his name, the guy who plays who's Creed as well. His name has just escaped me. Uh, Jordan. Yes, who um, who's plays Killmonger is also, his narrative in terms of the anger he has mm-hmm. isn't puerile. It's something that you can actually track and actually make sense. And so that movie is so important in terms of, and I remember seeing so many videos where in terms of the community engagement, lots of celebrities, people who had money or the means were engaging in buying out entire showing to send underprivileged black kids to see this film mm-hmm. just so that the movie was an entertainment and could be the spark that births another Obama, that births another Tiger Woods, that births another, uh, you know, all of our, all of our, all of our leading men. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was, and it was a very important thing. And I think that's the same thing with um, Spider-Man and Spider-Verse. Not only is it an incredible superhero movie, and I think that one of the things why I'm attracted to superhero movies, I've always been a fan, X-Men, I've always been a fan of the X-Men narrative, is because I find I'm attracted to the narrative of being othered. And I have an affinity for that, the sense of society's perpetual othering of people who they don't understand. Mm-hmm. And having inhabited that space growing up, either homosexual and my size, and then moving to, to, to moving back to England and being black as well, and all, all those things, those stories hold a, a huge significance, solace and inspiration for me. And so moving to the end of the year to end significantly to start with Black Panther and to end with um, Spider-Man and Spider-Verse. Not only is the story 
excellent in terms of the writing. It's just really, really, really clever writing to have the kind of not quite as blue humour as Deadpool, but kind of witty and acerbic. The integration of all the different worlds, um, all the Spider-Verses and all those stories then melting into our version of New York and all kind of vehicles by this biracial boy who's um, half black, half, half Hispanic. Again, an incredible story to see. Um, and not just because he was that color, but it's also the fact that his story now intersects with a story that we all grew up with, which is the Spider-Man story. Mm-hmm. A story that for a long time has been preserved and in our heads, we don't even think about it. We don't even think about it as, I, I, I think this is the power of excluding us from the narrative. For us to now pervade this story, a story of heroism and selflessness and hard work, and for them to insert us into that story, whilst also going, it's all our story. So there was the White Valley dancer, there was the pig, there was the black and white version, there was the alternate Peter Parker, and now there is um, the black Hispanic boy. It's not saying that... We are excluding everyone else's story. We're not saying we're now integrating you into the story as well. I think it's an incredible feat that um, superhero tales and mutant tales have been able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's a, a huge credit to the power of Stanley's catalogue and what those stories have come to. And I think the writers have done an extraordinary job, not only in a new animation and how it was used and writing the story, but this thing of shifting the conversation around diversity to representation. I think diversity and representation is diversity is the policy talking about what we want to do. And representation is when we see what that is in practice. Yeah. And it, what, I think, what I was going to say about Black Panther in particular is that I, I think black representation in film and TV has been either playing to stereotypes, saying that black people can only be drug dealers or, you know, as you said, or prostitutes or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, or, yeah. or the sexy black friend or, you know. Right. Or casting black people in roles, um, you know, using the kind of colorblind casting philosophy saying, oh, it doesn't matter that they're black. It doesn't mean anything. Race is, you know, irrelevant, yeah. which is the, the other side of the coin. It's like, of course, race is relevant. Um, and I think Black Panther did such an excellent job of giving this platform for a black superhero, having an almost all black cast, you know, very like two, two or three token white roles, and then everyone else is black. And the fact that these characters are black is not mm. at all beside hey. the point. It is a, an essential part of the story. But as you said, mm. they, it's black royalty, but still set in a context of a world that where racism exists, where, you know, yeah. um, race is important and is something that can't be ignored. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the whole conversation, I think the the anti-conversation is to try and gloss over this by going, I don't see color or it doesn't matter. It's like, no, that's actually ignoring the fact that there is a gross inequality in all of our conversations and in all of our dealings. And to move the conversation on and to actually tackle it is to see color and go, what, how and why is there a difference? And how am I doing it differently? And I think that film, those films do an incredible job of having the conversation without kind of ramming it down your throat. I remember reading, what's his name? Ben, 
Ben Shapiro. Um, I remember reading one of his tweets around the um, Black Panther hype, and he was being affronted by it. He was literally affronted by the fact that this movie was happening and it was getting so much attention. And he says, I don't get it. I don't see what the point is. What more do they want? Yeah, I mean, they, they've, they've already had Blade. <laughs> which was over 20 years ago. But also, oh, idea fucking God. of this day, this day, I don't know what more they want. As if, we aren't the same. So, you know, I, um, I, I applaud, I applaud the superhero genre. Um, it's also, it was also, it was a massive opening weekend. I think the most it broke records and yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. But also that, I think the heart of why those two films matter to me from last year for those reasons that I've just highlighted. Yeah. And hopefully going forward, you know, it's impossible to say what is in the mind of minds of investors and producers and people who have control in Hollywood. But seeing that, you know, Black Panther is one of the top 10 grossing films of all time. Uh, Spider-Man is doing incredibly well as well. Both of them are really well reviewed, really well received. And the sad part of that to me is that if Black Panther hadn't done well, I think it would have meant terrible things for black representation in film for a long time but hopefully because the opposite was true it'll mean that people are more willing to tell stories about black people and and for black people as well not caring you know recognizing that black audiences come out and see films and you know you don't need to tell stories that cater uh, tell stories about black people that only cater to white audiences yeah also seeing the excitement like when i went to see black panther i've never seen that many people dressed up in costumes and just oh my god incredible people taking pictures in front of the poster such insane excitement and it was amazing just like an absolute joy my friend um my friend w- went in his African gear. I don't know. He's half gone in and he sent me a photo from the cinema and everyone was just kind of, you know, reveling in what this meant. And it was just a great thing to see and watch and enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. So should we talk about some singers? Yeah, we should. So is Angela Georgiou a good yeah. jumping off point? Um, specifically... La yes, yes, she is. The reason she is was because she was my entry point into that, into the genre of opera, really. I, I suppose my, my initial taste of it was Andrea Bocelli, um, who is a tenor who happens to be blind. And um, that's kind of how I started. I'd always kind of been into classical music, and then he took me into opera even though I kind of knew who Pavarotti was, but my kind of entry point in opera for real, on stage opera, but art form, as opposed to just the voice, was Angela Giogu's performance, um, the Royal Opera House um, production of La Traviata. When I first moved here, there was um, an incredible feat of engineering and um, artistry and execution in a live version of La Traviata um, a live um, site-specific performance of La Traviata in Paris. And it was over three days. And it was in um, different locations. And I was, I mean, it was just a feast of glorious engineering because you couldn't see the orchestra. And it was in like a ballroom and then garden. And, and so that's how I got into the music. But Angela's, Giorgio's 
performance at the Opera House. I remember hearing her performance of one of the main arias, which is the end of Act One, called Sempre Libera. And listening to this recording, which is available, it's actually one of the top recordings of, of this reduction, and being absolutely transported by her performance of it. But I remember one of the most jarring things of listening to this production, um, listening to this recording, is at the end of this aria, which is coloratura. So it's got lots of runs and lots of high bits and it starts off as just a really wonderful beautiful aria then goes into this kind of fast really technical super technical um possibly aria a bit like queen of the night for magic flute but at the end of this kind of flawless almost if not perfect rendition of sempre libera the audience applaud which then completely cuts across this kind of transportive in a, in a wonderful way transportive nature of the aria because you think you think that you're hearing the blue diva from fifth element is the equivalent mm-hmm. of that and mm-hmm. um, where you think it's kind of it's got to be studio produced you've got to you, you know see they've had time to tweak it they've had time to auto-tune that that can't be real and at the end of this perfect rendition the audience clap and go crazy and like oh my god oh my god it's live that's actually her live on stage. So not only is she singing this, she's acting it and she's moving it and the orchestra are playing it live and people are watching this and then the people... And I found that so incredible, really inspirational in terms of her ability to deliver this aria uh, as someone who aspires to be a, um, is an aspiring opera singer, to hear the technical proficiency and to kind of think... That's absolutely impossible. But then to be reminded by the fact that she's just human, like I am, by the audience watching it was just an incredible thing. It was, and since then, you know, I've, I do uh, more Verdi, more Puccini, Wagner, Strauss, all of them. But that was my entry point into really loving the art form. Mm. And like you said, I think one of the most fascinating things about opera is knowing the technical proficiency that's required to to make make those sounds make those sounds and to sing these incredibly difficult songs flawlessly combined with telling a story and you know acting not standing there you know looking like you're really concentrating on your your breath and you know how you're going to make this song come out of you but relaxed and just as if it's not absolutely Absolutely. When I, I had a singing lesson once, and my singing teacher did, described what opera singers do as watching a swan glide, glide over a lake. It's all you just all you see, all we see is the beautiful glide. But what we don't see is just beneath that line of water is the muscles going crazy beneath and all the water that they have to kind of wade through with their legs splayed and, and how that action is. Um, all we, we see is the beautiful result of the fluidity of their movements. And mm-hmm. I think that's the real artistry of watching a successful opera singer is going into is only getting from them the narrative of the story and going into the composer's mind and delivering all this beauty, as opposed to seeing all the hard work that he put in, the years and years and years of work. You know, like, she speaks three languages. Mm. Um, There's a documentary where she's there rehearsing some of this at the Opera House, and she's singing, I I think it's in French, but then she speaks to Antonio Papano in Italian, and she speaks English, and you're just like, and she's studied in all these places, and it's such an incredible feat of of dedication. yeah, I find it incredibly inspirational, and I and I I love the art form very much. 
Yeah, it's just absolutely superhuman. It is superhuman. It is superhuman. And and um, to think that, and, and, and the reason why I find it really um, inspirational is because she doesn't have three heads or five eyes or six arms. No, she's got the exact same capacity to train and deliver like we both do. And so there is, um, I know, of course, we're all born with varying levels of talent, but there is something inspirational by of seeing someone um, deliver that. And I, I suppose what makes it really, the reason why I chose Jesse Norman mm-hmm. as um, the opera singer was because then that ambition, you get, there is an injection of reality and attainability when someone like Jesse Norman is injected into the narrative because then the conversation of, of diversity, because her, she's diversity in action, which is representation, you kind of go, oh my God, it's not an, it's not, it is an elitist art form. Um, and it has been for a long time and it was closed off to a lot of people for a long time. But there is Jesse Norman smack bang in the middle of it, um, mm-hmm. delivering Wagner, who's notoriously one of the hardest composers in terms of having to sing over an piece orchestra and having to sing in German. And she was born American and then she became a leading Wagnerian singer and she can speak French and she can speak German and you're like okay okay so this is this is not just something that I can enjoy this is something that I can do mm-hmm. and that, that's, that's the glorious thing of discovering someone like Jesse Norman not only and I mean her voice uh, talking about her voice is a completely different conversation because Jesse Norman is a soprano who happens to be like she's sound she she's like a contralto as well which is the opposite end of the scale she has this really regal kind of sensorian um dark low 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 sound really full body but somehow she's able to take all that weight and color uh, for want of a better word um or actually a, a chosen word all the way to the top of her voice and through the her passaggio through the break there's no break in it it's just a uniform sound so hearing her kind of pervade that narrative which is as lots of people will recognize a very very kind of it'd been very very wise for a long time and it still is mm-hmm. um but to do it in the way that she did it i think they've been on under i don't know i say there are maybe 10 or less um, black performers that performed in Bayreuth, which is the home of Wagner. They only perform um, Wagner at Bayreuth. And she's one of them. And you think, wow, Jesus. And uh, not only were you that good, but just the strength to perform that in in that time, in the circumstances surrounding the voices that would have been around you, the whispers, and to deliver the quality that you were able to, and then to be respected and internationally embraced and renowned is uh, such an inspiring uh, story for me, I think. Yeah, totally amazing. And in, in, in the same, a similar vein to Black Panther and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, yes, absolutely. it's a beacon, um, this, this signal to black kids, to other kids of color, to anyone who feels like these art forms are not for them because they're not for them. Um, seeing this example of someone who not only has been allowed into this elite exclusive club that has historically um, excluded black people, but is yeah. at the top right. of the field. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. That is, it's such an extraordinary, 
extraordinary feat. And you know what's glorious? I know that um, I feel like technology is going to be the death of us. But also, thanks to technology, I've been able to connect with these heroes. I've been able to see um, Jesse Norman performing at Bayreuth because it's been recorded and loaded onto YouTube. And so not I've been able to be inspired by the, their achievements. Mm-hmm. It's been magnificent, really. Yeah. And I, I, was, I spend hours being lost in it. Yeah. I was speaking to somebody about theater, um, just musicals and, and straight plays being so yeah. prohibitively expensive, especially yeah. in the city and on, on Broadway, that yeah. there's yeah, this yeah. enormous barrier to people, you know, par- participating and feeling like it's something for them. And it's the same thing with opera, that it's, you know, something that's very expensive and there are expectations of of what you look like and what you wear when you go to it absolutely. having absolutely you know having all of these performances available for free on youtube um is incredible it is incredible because i'm somebody a friend of mine has just come back from new york and just very last minute i think they were probably drunk thinking that they could go and see hamilton and the tickets were like 100 something dollars and i was like <sighs> that's really difficult having seen that musical which is extraordinary i just it becomes you become trapped by your own success mm-hmm. because it, it, it absolutely rails against the stereotype and is trying to it delivers this story in i mean it challenges you it is absolutely what theater is and theater should be it completely explodes the myth of what this art form should be and completely reinvents it. And it's a joy that you don't watch this and kind of go, why is she Chinese? Why is she black? Why is she? No, because that's implicit in this art form, in the contract we make when we buy into this art form when you buy a ticket. None of it is real. It's all make-believe. Mm-hmm. It's, it's all about who can deliver on stage, and that's what Hamilton does. So for Hamilton to then be so prohibitively expensive as opposed to birthing the generations of Hamiltons to come is really, really heartbreaking and disappointing. When I heard about that price, I was like, if someone from the Bronx or Queens or or anywhere, wherever the hell they're from, doesn't have access to this, and a bit like the Billy Elliot story as well, if you don't have access to this, then how do you know that this could be you? Mm-hmm. How, how can we, how can you, when we are, they could be the curators of kids' imaginations, how can they access this if they can't afford it? And I find that breaking. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's the case for being in the audience for live theater, but also for, for training for performance. Julie Walters was uh, interviewed uh, uh, about her experience of going to drama school. And, and she was saying that someone like her, who'd grown up in a working class family, couldn't afford to go to drama school now. And that the, the door, you know, the barriers of entry are so high. Um, and unless you're, you're lucky enough to get a scholarship or something, that participation in the arts, whether it be as a performer or as a spectator, the, you know, the, the entry points can be very difficult to uh, access. Yes. And she's not, and she's not wrong. And, you know, if you think about the fact that um, Julie Walters is a national treasure here now, mm-hmm. and if she hadn't had access to the training that she got, we would never know. We would never know. We wouldn't have her. You know, the in a in a in a different Spider Verse, she auditioned, got the place, but then couldn't afford it, and then we would just never have heard of her unless she found another route. But you know, that is a very likely outcome in in today in today's narrative. 
is that there's so many there's so many talent that we could next Nuria, the next um, Sylvie Guillem, the next Judy Wall, the next Jesse Norman, the next Hamilton. We might never see these people because they can't. It's not even it's not even on their radar because who's got six hundred dollars to spend on a theater ticket when I've got to survive? I've got to pay four thousand dollars for my annual um, healthcare insurance. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of where we're at, which is a little bit heartbreaking. Well, on that note, I think yeah. uh, we've uh, covered a lot of ground. Great. Very pleased. Yes. Uh, thank you so much for talking to me. This has been an absolute pleasure. My pleasure. I'm so glad we could finally make it happen. I'm so glad. If the loyal hordes of listeners who are um, enjoying this conversation would like to find find out more about you um, and yes. what you're up to. How do they go yeah. about that? Um, so I've got a website, but the most kind of direct contact you would have with me would be on Twitter, which is Legato Chocolat, or on Facebook, which is Legato Chocolat as well, or on Instagram, which is guess Legato Chocolat. So I'm on those three platforms and um, you can either leave a comment on the page or send me a direct message. Um, and if you want to discuss any of these things, I'm always I'm always very excited to engage in conversations about art and life and, you know, theater, whatever, really. So, so yeah, um, you can reach me on this platform. Well, thank you again. And thank, you. To you. thank you. Thank you. He's so fantastic. I loved that conversation. If you are ever in a city where he is performing, please don't miss out. He is an astonishing performer. Enough gushing? Okay, okay, fine. So I won't keep you for much longer. I just have one recommendation for you this week. It's a film called Long Day's Journey Into Night. No, nothing to do with the Eugene O'Neill play. It's a film by Chinese director Bi Gan, and it's so amazing. It's pretty abstract, but it's so, so beautiful, and it includes an hour-long, uninterrupted shot that is just astonishing. It's really one of the most impressive things I've ever seen on film. It's got a pretty limited release, at least in New York, but it's definitely worth seeing on a big screen if you get a chance. Oops, did I promise to stop gushing? Guess I broke my promise. Sorry. Okay. All done? Yes, I think so. Follow me on social media, please, at Spark Parade. Please rate and review the show, too. It'll really make my day if you do. Other than that, be good. Have a good week. That's it. More next week. Bye. Want to get smarter about investing? Then tune in to the Capital Ideas podcast from Capital Group, home of American Funds Distributors, Inc., one of the world's leading asset managers. Learn from portfolio managers with decades of experience by listening to the Capital Ideas podcast today.